You're listening to WVEWLP 107.7 FM, Brattleboro's Community Radio, also streaming online at WVEW.org. This is the Vermont for Mystery Hour, a show exploring the Green Mountain State's strange past and present through stories that pique your curiosity and make your neck prickle. Beat the Sunday Scaries with me every weekend, broadcasting Sundays at 7 p.m., or catch the rebroadcast on Thursday nights. The opinions expressed on the Vermont Ver Mystery Hour are those of the host and guests, and don't necessarily reflect those of WVEW 107.7 FM. Today's programming at WVEW is sponsored in part by Shippy Auto, located at 753 Brattleboro Road in Hinsdale, New Hampshire. Independently and locally owned since 1995, Shippy Auto provides automotive repairs, preventative maintenance, fleet services, New Hampshire state inspections, and free loaner cars. Specializing in Subarus and servicing all other SUVs, cars, and trucks, Shippy Auto serves the tri-state area. To learn more, visit ShippyAuto.com or call 603-336-5100. WVEW thanks Shippy Auto for supporting community radio. Every October, the city of Salem, Massachusetts becomes Halloween capital, USA. People come from across the country and the world to participate in the revelry and visit the local historical landmarks, from the old Burying Point Cemetery to the Witch House. And the city largely owes this booming tourism industry to a dark spot in its past, the persecution and execution of more than 20 people in the Salem Witch Trials of 1692. This chapter of Salem's history might be the most notorious period of American witch trials, but it wasn't the only hysteria of its kind in the United States or even in New England. In fact, there were a handful of other documented witch trials in the region, including one that's believed to have occurred right here in Vermont. Welcome to the Vermont Bur Mystery Hour. I'm Meg McIntyre. Vermont is a sleepy town of about 4,000, nestled in the very southwest corner of the state. Bordering New York and Massachusetts, the town is built on the banks of the Hoosick River and flanked by miles of lush forest land that's intersected by a section of the Long Trail. One of Pownall's first prominent families were the Kriegers, a family of Dutch settlers who came to Vermont in the early 1730s. They were squatters, who settled on land not yet claimed by other colonizers, and built a grist mill on a plot at the foot of a cliff near the river. We use Krigger rocks when we're giving directions. Uh, you know, you go past Krigger rocks, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> so Krigger rocks is in our vocabulary for sure. That's Joyce Held of the Pownall Historical Society. She told me the Society's research indicates that the Krieger family was likely at the center of the witchcraft accusations in Pownall and the ensuing trial, which is thought to be the only one of its kind in Vermont history. 
Most of what we know about the Pownall Witch Trial comes from two historical accounts written in the 1800s, one by T.E. Brownell and the other by Grace Greylock Niles. Joyce says historians believe the trial may have occurred in the late 1760s, but because no exact date or even year has been confirmed, the identity of the accused witch, Widow Krieger, also remains somewhat of a mystery. The stories could be referring to Margaret, the widow of family patriarch Johann Krieger, who died in 1785, or they could be about the widow of Johann's son, Hans, who passed away in 1765. Whichever woman it was, her status as a widow was likely part of the reason she was accused of being a witch. The account continues that after the death of her husband, the widow Krieger was subject to intolerable inquisitiveness and an unparalleled speaking about by neighbors. And then it wasn't long before someone accused her of having extraordinary powers and then witchcraft was claimed. Why did they claim she was a witch? Was it because of envy or was it because she was now alone and they saw her as a burden to the community? Those reasons were pretty common when women were called witches, but we don't know. Upon her accusation, the widow Krieger was given two options. They gave her the offer of she could choose between climbing a tree or being emerged through the ice in the river. If upon the tree being cut down, she was not killed, she was a witch. Otherwise not. So that wasn't a very good choice because she was going to be in trouble no with. So that didn't, that wasn't really a, a good choice for her. So Widow Krieger was pretty smart. She listened to that second choice and she heard. The second choice would be that a hole would be cut in the ice on the Hoosick River, just large enough for her to fit through. And as she went to the bottom, she would be acquitted. If she floated, she was guilty. So she chose the latter test as the safer of the two. Luckily, the widow Krieger plunged into the water and sank like a stone, according to the accounts. And Joyce says the committee actually struggled to get her out of the river and had to cut larger holes in the ice to grab hold of her before the water swept her away. They decided that if she had been a witch, she would have been saved by her powers infernal. And so the widow Krieger was officially cleared of these allegations of witchcraft. I don't know if you know how many witch trials there were, but witch trials mostly consisted of women. Average age was above 40, without husbands to protect them, whose society looked uh, as a burden. And women were looked upon as the weaker of the sex by the church and seen more vulnerable to the seductive powers of the devil. It was sort of an Adam and Eve thing. And reasons to be accused ranged from being too poor, too rich, too many children, no children. She bewitched someone or even the livestock, you know, the cow stopped producing milk, the witch did it, or she was domineering or outspoken. I think my husband will have claimed that I'm probably a witch by those allegations. <laughs> Good news is that the majority of those accused were acquitted. There are similar stories of trials that occurred in the seacoast region of New Hampshire during this period. A woman named Eunice Cole, who lived in Hampton, New Hampshire, was accused of witchcraft three times in the late 1600s, according to New Hampshire Public Radio. She apparently had a reputation in the area as a bit of a grump, and used to fight with her neighbors about things like property lines and lost sheep. This eventually escalated to accusations of witchcraft, and townsfolk began to blame Eunice for their personal tragedies. 
people offered evidence that, amid the death of a young child, they'd heard loud scraping sounds outside, which they believed to be the work of a witch's animal familiar, like a cat. They also pointed to Eunice's witch's mark, a skin imperfection that today would probably be referred to as a mole, or another kind of growth. But she was found guilty and sent to prison. And after being released, Eunice would be accused of witchcraft two more times. In each, she was found likely guilty, but the court said there wasn't enough evidence to convict her. It's believed she lived out the rest of her life on the town green, and may have been unceremoniously buried in a ditch by the townspeople. Another woman named Jane Walford was tried for witchcraft in the Seacoast region in 1656, and, like Eunice Cole, was accused three separate times. Because her husband was an important man locally, and the courts were beginning to tighten restrictions on evidence in witch trials, she was never convicted, but actually successfully sued for slander in two of the cases. It's important to note that Eunice Cole also lost her husband in the midst of these accusations, much like the widow Krieger and a number of other victims of the witchcraft hysteria. Because women had very little status or power during that time period, they were easy victims of these accusations, and women without a man to protect them were even more vulnerable. You know, was she a witch? Was she a lonely lady who was still grieving the loss of her husband? Probably longing for friendship and compassion, but all she got was accusations and, and hate. There's still a lot of concrete information missing about the Pownall witch trial, from the exact date to the true identity of Widow Krieger. But Joyce thinks it's unlikely that the stories are fabricated. And she hasn't been able to find any record of what happened to the Widow Krieger after she was acquitted. At least not yet. Those two accounts... Uh, makes me feel like there is some truth to this. And of course, there was Creekers who lived in Pommel. So why was that name attached? Why wasn't it somebody else's name attached? The hard part for me is to, which is going to drive me crazy till I find out, if I can find out what widow are they talking about? Are they talking about the son Hans widow because he died at an early age? Or was it Margaret who came as a, as a settler back in, in the early 1700s. So right now, I'm, I'm leaning towards Hans. <laughs> so I'll let you know when I find out, so we'll both know. She also says there are plenty of locals who know the story of Widow Krieger's trial, but in many ways, it's still relatively unknown. It's not even mentioned on the town's Wikipedia page. Uh, as historians and you know, part of the Pommel Historical Society, we love to bring out those little unknown things. You know, we celebrate Jim Fisk's birthday on April 1st because Jim Fisk was born here in Pommel. So, you know, that's just a little kind of a fun thing to do. We give him a birthday party and sing him happy birthday. And we all get to eat cake, so why not? So I don't know what we can do for, for Widow Krieger other than maybe have an ice party or something. I don't know. <laughs> but we'll think of something. So, we might not know which Widow Krieger went into the ice that day, or even when that day actually occurred, but Joyce says it's still important to remember the trial, because it's part of the fabric that makes Pownall what it is. Yes, I think we should really um, honor our past and enjoy the stories, because they're stories of people who made us who we are today. We'll be right back. I 
was originally on the fence about the vaccine. I've definitely been on the fence. Some people are nervous. Right up until today, walking in here, I wasn't going to get it. It's kind of politically charged. We're all trying to do the right thing and figure this out together. But then once I read a little bit about it, after listening to a lot of the professionals. I talked to my doctor. I said, this is safe. He says, 100%. I actually followed the science. I believe in science. Up to 50% of all cases could be asymptomatic. The benefits outweigh any potential risks. You'll be able to travel more, like more things will open up for you. It's not just for you, it's for everybody else. That should be all it takes to have a reason to get vaccinated. I'm just sick of things feeling the same for this long at this point. I have the opportunity to just cancel it all out. I might as well do it. It's free. It's painless. It's a quick 30 seconds. I was in and out. Uh, a lot worse in my head than I thought it was going to be. I'm really grateful that I did get it. This is Our Shot Vermont. Sign up at healthvermont.gov slash myvaccine. You're listening to WVEW LP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM. We are your community radio station. And as your community radio station, we rely on you, the community, to help keep us going. If you would like to help support us, please go to WVEW.org and click on the big blue donate button that says support WVEW. You can also put your spare change in any of the donation jars located around downtown Brattleboro at Zephyr Designs, Everyone's Books, Twice Upon a Time, In the Moment, Beadniks, Harmony Underground, Turn It Up, and The Hotel Pharmacy. WVEW thanks you for your support of this station. All right, welcome back, everybody. It's time once again for a little weekly review segment I like to call Murder, She Rates. Now, I recently watched the film Silence and Darkness, directed by New York-based filmmaker Barack Barakan. This movie was filmed in Waitsfield and Warren in the Mad River Valley, and it features local landmarks like the Big Picture Theater and Cafe, and in 2019, it was actually awarded Best Feature Film at the DC Independent Film Festival. Sisters Beth and Anna live with their father on an idyllic, secluded property in the woods of rural Vermont. Beth is deaf while Anna is blind, and they've learned to communicate through tactile signing, talking through touch with their hands. The two young women spend every minute together and rely on each other for almost everything. Anna prefers to pass the days with music as Beth practices her gymnastics. Their father, the town doctor, dotes on his daughters but also seems to harbor an obsession with cleanliness and disease and keeps them both on a strict health regimen but the sisters start to question their father's intention, as well as the true purpose of the medication he's giving them. This film is a perfectly crafted slow burn. True to the movie's name, the filmmakers target our senses with the visual and auditory composition of the film. It's full of lingering shots that feel just a few seconds too long, giving each moment an uneasy weightiness. These drawn-out moments also give the viewer an opportunity to appreciate the filmmaker's meticulous and intentional framing. The beautiful Vermont landscape is both a calming setting and an eerie one, juxtaposed against the unsettling atmosphere inside the family's home. There's also no musical score, and many scenes are silent except for the background hum of springtime insects. Anna speaks with her father and others who live in the town, but much of the dialogue is between the two sisters, with no subtitles to communicate exactly what they're saying. 
I found it fitting that those of us who don't have disabilities should be left out of Beth and Anna's conversations, just as our society frequently neglects to accommodate those with disabilities. The ambiguity of their conversations also serves to build the tension to the film's crescendo, which is perfectly paced. And at just about 80 minutes long, the film makes expert use of each of the minutes it has. Overall, I really enjoyed Silence and Darkness, and I would give this one 4.5 out of 5 skulls. Let me know what you thought, or send me a suggestion for future reviews at vermystery at gmail.com. That's vermystery at gmail.com. Thanks once again to Joyce Held of the Pownall Historical Society for joining me on today's episode. I also found information from the two accounts she mentioned by T.E. Brownell and Grace Greylock-Niles, as well as from the New Hampshire Public Radio podcast series, The Real Witches of New Hampshire, which I highly recommend if you haven't checked that out yet. The Vermont Vermystery Hour is written, produced, and hosted by me, Meg McIntyre, with research help from Matt Bruno. Our cover art is by Ginny Stoos, and our theme music is by me and my pal Nikki Seafried. If you like this episode, be sure to find the show on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you usually listen. And don't forget to tell us what you thought in a rating or a review. You can also follow the Vermont Vermystery Hour on Twitter at Vermystery Pod. Let's beat those Sunday scaries, friends.